Good morning. morning. Turn to somebody next to you and say, I'm so glad that I'm me. Now say to the same person, I'm so glad that I'm not you. If you'd have been in the police station that night, you'd have heard the question for yourself. I got arrested at two o'clock in the morning in the very posh Pavilion Gardens in Buxton. You ever been to Buxton? It's well posh, isn't it? (laughs) I was naked. And I was totally off my head. The arresting police officers drove me to the local police station. I was wearing nothing but a beige blanket that the police officers had given to me. It was itchy. Oh no, here we go again. I hope they give me bail. The desk sergeant had bright red cheeks. He was bordering on retirement age and his belly hung over his stretched leather belt. He was sat behind his desk as he processed me. What's your name? Barry Woodward. What's your address? No fixed abode. He asked me my date of birth. Then he asked me this question. They ask this every time. Do you have any scars, marks or tattoos? Yeah. See, there's a section on their system that says SMTs, which stands for scars, marks and tattoos. This is one of the ways they use to identify a person. There may be lots of six foot six men with ginger hair, but only one with a five inch scar on the side of his face. A tattoo of a British bulldog on the side of his neck and the words made in limb tattooed around his belly button. (laughs) Let me ask you the same question. Do you have any scars? Marks or tattoos? Most of you here will have a scar on your body, maybe from an incident in the past. Many of you will have a distinguishing mark. Could be a birthmark or something of that nature. Some of you may have tattoos on your skin. See, we've all got them in one shape or form. Scars, marks and tattoos are different markings, different types of markings on our bodies. They are part of our journey. What can we learn from them? Four lessons for you to take away. Scars, marks and tattoos. Number one, scars are evidence of your survival. The Collins Dictionary says that a scar is what's left on the skin following the healing of a wound. Scars can be caused by many things. Surgery can leave us with scars. An accident can leave us with scars. Fighting can leave us with scars. I had a mate from Manchester, we called him Scarface Stewart. He had a scar that went from the inside of his mouth up the side of his cheek. He'd done this in a fight. I've got scars on my arms that have been left through using drugs. The start of these go right back to that Friday night in Jackie Marshall's bedroom. I was with nine of my mates, including Craig and Psycho. 
psycho had crossed eyes. So when he looked at you, he didn't actually look at you. One eye looked at your left ear, and the other eye looked at the big toe on your right foot. He always had greasy hair, and he had tattoos on his hands, love and hat. He forgot, forgot to put the letter E on his little finger. Imagine you're a fly on the wall. We were smoking weed, listening to Bob Marley and the Wailers. The windows were vibrating with the bass line, and we've got money in our pockets, getting ready to go to Manchester, as we did every weekend. And the door opens, and Huey comes walking in. Hey, guys, hey, guys, hey, guys, what? I've got some heroin who wants some. We all went quiet. Craig looked at me. I looked at Huey. Huey looked at Psycho, and he attempted to look back. (laughs) And I remember the glimmer of curiosity in Craig's brown eyes. He was always the first to jump in. And do you know anybody like that? He said, I'm up for it. You said I'm game and psycho says I'm well game. And everybody in the room had their heroin and I was the last one. Come on, Woody, it's your turn. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be the odd one out. Have you ever been in that situation when everybody else in your group has done something and you're the last one? And you don't want to be left out of the crowd. You want to be in with the crowd. That's where I was that night. Come on, Woody. I was injected with it. It wasn't long before I was using it every day. Eventually, I had wounds on my arms that turned into scars. Some of these scars are still visible today. Even though you'd have to look really closely to see them, they're there. These scars for me, though, are evidence that I've survived 15 years of hardcore drug addiction. Think about your scars. Think about those things that you've been through that have left you with a scar. Those scars are evidence that you survived. You may be saying, hey, what about me? I can't say I've survived. I'm still wounded. My healing hasn't come yet. It could be that you're facing a crisis right now and you can't see a way out. It could be that you've been hurt and your wound is beyond repair. Listen, listen, listen. I know the thought of having any kind of scars relating to survival is so far away for some of you because right now, you're right in the thick of it. Do you know what? You can come through it. Whatever it may be for you. You can do it with God's help. I did, and I know there's others here that have done it too. See, Jesus died on the cross. They put him in the tomb. And three days later, he rose again. And the Bible says he came to his disciples and he showed them the scars on his hands and his side. These scars were evidence that he survived. And because he survived death, it means he can help you survive things too. It just needs your cooperation. What are you going to do? Scars, marks and tattoos. Scars are evidence of your survival. Number two, marks make you unique. Anybody here like to read the newspaper? Put up your hands if you like to read the Guardian. Hmm. (laughs) Anybody like to read the Independent? Any of you common like me like to read the Daily Mirror? 
If you'd have been reading it that day, you'd have seen the article about Jessica. Jessica was born with a birthmark down the right side of her face. When she walked down the street, strangers would often stop and stare. When she was a kid, she had numerous operations to try to remove it. She said, sometimes when I was a kid, I used to sit in front of a mirror with a piece of paper over the right side of my face to see what I looked like without the mark. Can you imagine how she felt? Then at 16 years of age, something changed. She said, I had a makeover to go to the school prom. She said, the beautician plastered my face with foundation and concealer so the birthmark couldn't be seen. When I saw myself in the mirror, though, I hated it. And I cried and cried and cried. I washed off all the makeup and I went to the school prom barefaced. It was then that she realized that the mark was part of her identity. Now Jessica is 23. She's got three children. She said, my kids are so accepting of me. She said, every day they tell me that I'm beautiful. And when they give me a kiss, it's always on the cheek with the mark. They don't see it as unusual. We all realize that my mark makes me unique. We've all got marks, haven't we? Some are visible and others aren't. What things have marked your life? A troubled upbringing, a broken relationship, a missed opportunity. Do you ever look into the mirror and think life would be so much better without this mark? Do you go through life trying to conceal it? Listen. Rather than trying to hide your marks, you need to realize that your marks make you unique. They are part of your identity. And without them, you wouldn't be the person that you are today. You are unique. Margaret Mead said, always remember that you are unique, just like everybody else. (laughs) See, when God made you, he made one of you. The Bible says, before God formed you in the womb, he knew you. He created you as an individual and it's those things that have marked your life that have shaped you to become the person that you are today. There is nobody else like you on the planet. And when God looks at you each day, do you know what he says, marks and all? You're beautiful. I was speaking in a church. I can't tell you where it was just in case you're from Ozzletwistle. <laughs> oh, it was a rough church. Rough church. There was guard dogs in the car park. There was bouncers on the door. I get invited to all the glamorous places. I've got a friend called J. John. He was in Hawaii. And here I am in Oswald Twistle. Oh, it was the roughest church you can imagine. And I remember being sat on the front row and I looked back at the sea of faces behind me. You should have seen them. Scars, marks and tattoos. And that was just the women. Even the cockroaches had tattoos. And I think the arms of the chairs had tattoos and all. Do you know what I said to them? God looks at you today and he says that you're beautiful. Don't give yourself a hard time over your marks. Stuff happens to us all in life. That's the way that it is. You need to realize that your marks make you unique. Scars, marks and tattoos. Scars are evidence of your survival. Marks make you unique. And number three, tattoos cause you to stand out from the crowd. If you could meet my friend Ashley Stansfield, he's a Baptist minister. Got that one in. 
He's six foot two. He's 19 stone. He's got a bald head. And he's got a larger than life character. I was speaking in his church once and he came up to me after I finished. He said, Barry, I said, what? He said, Barry, a woman just come up to me and asked, what's the speaker doing with a cannabis leaf tattooed on his arm? He said, she looked relieved when I told her that you'd done this before you was a Christian. I'd have thought that would have been obvious, wouldn't you? <laughs> We're just going to finish church and have a split with our coffee in the other room as we, as we... I did this tattoo at a time in my life when I was young and I wanted to stand out from my friends. Any of you know what I'm talking about? It was Billy who did it. Billy was an old hippie. When he was younger, he spent three years of his life living in a teepee out in the sticks. Billy had permed air. He always smelled of petunia oil. And his arms and his hands were literally covered in tattoos. Most of them he'd done himself because he had a makeshift tattoo studio in his bedroom upstairs. On the day I had it done, me and my girlfriend Lisa went round to Billy's. I rang the bell. If you'd have been there, you'd have smelt that petunia oil. It's like a tsunami as he opened that door. When he saw it was me, he was smiling like a Cheshire cat on crack because because <laughs> he knew I was dealing drugs. Come upstairs, I'm in my studio. Okay, we followed Billy upstairs into his little tattoo studio and there were some pictures on the wall of different tattoos, but there was one of a cannabis leaf. I said, hey, Billy, I like that tattoo. Will you do us that tattoo and I'll pay you with some drugs? Daft question. Of course I will. I sat in the chair, Billy shaved my arm, he put the stencil on there, and as he started to do the black outline, I looked at it, and do you know what I thought? None of my mates have got a tattoo like this. This is really going to cause me to stand out from the crowd. Some of you here may have tattoos. And others here are like Michael J. Fox, who once said, my tattoo is that I don't have a tattoo. Whether you have tattoos or not, may I suggest to you that you can stand out from the crowd without having tattoos? You don't need to let Billy the hippie near you with his dodgy, wobbly tattoo gun. No. What you do need to do, you need to live a life that is different from those people around you. This is how you can truly stand up from the crowd. The Bible says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. The majority of people go through life, going with the flow, trying to fit in, conforming at times to other people's expectation. Why try to fit in when you can be somebody who stands out? You were born to be an original, so why die a copy? Don't you be content with just going with the flow and doing what everybody else does. Stand out from the crowd. Jesus did. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, God became a man. His name is Jesus. Jesus is God with skin on. And he came to this earth, and he lived on this earth. He was tempted in every way that you have ever been tempted, but he resisted temptation. He stood out from the crowd. He brought a life-changing message that went against the grain of his day. Some people got it, and they started to live it, and their lives became so different from those people around them that they too stood out from the crowd. And then, at the age of 33, Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a cross to pay the price for your faults, flaws and failures so that you can make a connection with him. So that you can know him in your knower. 
Not just know about him, you can get to know him in a personal way, where you know that you know that you know that you know him. Jesus and his early followers didn't conform to the ways of their days. Don't you conform to the ways of these days. Stand out from the crowd. Scars, marks, and tattoos. Scars are evidence of your survival. Marks make you unique. Tattoos cause you to stand out from the crowd at number four. Scars, marks, and tattoos are a journal of your life's experiences. Sometimes I look into the mirror and I think, oh, you're good looking. Other times I look into the mirror and I see some of my scars, my marks, and my tattoos, and I'm reminded of all the different things that I've been through. Going right back to when I was a kid. I was born in Salford, Manchester. My parents tell me that I was an ugly baby. In fact, I was so ugly on the day of my birth, the doctors put me in an incubator with tinted windows. The midwife took one look at my face and she slapped my mother. I wasn't a a good-looking baby. (laughs) Went to primary school, didn't like it. Didn't take me long to realise I had the IQ north of a bedroom slipper. The wheel was turning, but the hamster was dead. (laughs) Didn't like school. One day on the way home, me and my Asian friend Gary has a party. We were messing around in some old houses in Salford. And the police came. And I remember we ran away and I got my leg caught in some barbed wire. I've still got the two scars there today. Didn't like primary school. Didn't like secondary school. What's all that about? My first day at secondary school. I turned up with our Kevs, my oldest brothers, and me down blazer on. Did you ever wear hand me downs? Some of you still got them on by the look of it. <laughs> He was six foot six and I was three foot six. And my mama turned the sleeves up. It was massive. I got into a fight that day, no wonder. Didn't like school. Didn't like school. Hated school. History, why do I need to learn about history? Physics, how's that going to help me in my future? English, why do I need to learn English? I'm a Mancunian. <laughs> We've got an English of our own. We use words and phrases like nice one, top one, sorted. Bang out of all door. In it, in it. I speak in 30 jails a year. I was speaking three years ago in a Young Offenders Institute in Yorkshire. And after the finish, this little lad came up to me. He went, you're from Manchester, in it. I went, yeah, I'm from Manchester, in it. He went, nice one, top one, sorted, in it. In it. I said, what are you doing here in Yorkshire if you're from Manchester? He said, they shit me out, didn't they? They bang out of all door. In it. I left school at the age of 16 with no qualifications. I I sat two exams and I didn't even bother answering the questions. I didn't care. All I wanted to do was get out into the real world. All I left school with was a coat that I made in metal work because I was a practical kind of guy. And a scar between my eyes that Mrs. Gunn did when she threw that boar duster at me (laughs) for talking in class. They could get away with it then. You know that, some of you. And that's when I met Craig Huey and Psycho. One day, me and Craig went to Saz Cooper's in Caddyshead. Well-known tattoo artist. Craig had his tattoo. I had my tattoo. I had a tattoo of an eagle. Psycho should have met us there to have the letter E tattooed on his little finger. <laughs> he finally remembered, but he didn't make it because he got on the wrong bus. 
It was when I was lying around with Craig, you were psycho, and I started to take recreational drugs, just smoking weed, cannabis, taking LSD, using amphetamine. Then eventually I started to use heroin. And I often say this when I'm speaking on the radio or wherever, that actually the softer drugs are always the gateway to the harder drugs. I don't know anybody who just starts off taking harder drugs. It's usually the softer drugs that lead to that. And there will be exceptions, but in my case and everybody that I knew in my little world were people who'd started with the softer drugs. It's around this time when I met Lisa. Lisa had a mark at the top of her arm. She had a scar on her wrist and she had a tattoo on her hip. She was 11 years older than me. I moved away from where I was living in Salford to Moss Side. In fact, it was Hume, Meredith Court, which is on the fringe of Moss Side. In fact, the flats are still there today. We moved into those flats and we sold people we sold people drugs who lived on every floor, which was wrong on so many levels. And I started to make decent money. I was selling softer drugs and I started to sell heroin. And I always say this when I'm telling my basic story that I never tell my story to glorify my past. It's just my story. Started to make decent money. Ended up with a nice flat, nice clothes. Had a nice girlfriend. Had a bit of gold around my neck. She had gold around her neck. I had everything that I thought was important. Everything was going great. And then I got nicked. Got put into jail. Did a little bit of time. Omri Mann came out straight back at the drugs. Then I got nicked again. Got put back inside. Did a little bit more time. Came out. I was on that treadmill. I was in on one sense. I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a tattoo on my hand. Of my girlfriend's name. I was working in the mailbag shop. So I got some cotton. Got a needle. Got some water-based paints from one of the lifers. If you'd have been sat in my cell, you'd have seen how I did it. I sat on my bed and I got that needle out with the cotton tied at the end of it, dipped it into the, to the water-based paint that had been made to be thick and, and I did the name Lisa because I wanted you to know that I loved her in it. And I did some asterisk stars as well above the name Lisa. Came out from that sentence. Was arrested again. Did a bit, did a, got back into drugs, arrested again, did a bit more time. I certainly was on that treadmill. I've been in Preston Prison, Lisa met me at the gate. I said, come on, Lisa, we're going to go and celebrate. All I want to do is get off my face. I had my free train pass in my pocket to get me back to Manchester. Went straight to my doctor's. I was on Valium, Dare Formulates, Tamazepam that I used to sell. By now, they was giving methadone out. I was put back on my methadone prescription. Got loads of amphetamine. It gives you energy. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I was whizzing out of my face. If you'd have seen me, you'd have thought I looked like an hyperactive woodpecker on speed. <laughs> and I'd always been into music, mainly reggae music as a kid. And I used to record from two pirate radio stations. And I was tuning the dial, trying to lock into these pirate radio stations. And I locked into a station that was playing house music. House music. And I was mesmerised. I'd never heard house music before in my life. This was before house music had come to the UK. And we were like listening to bands like Kraftwerk, which was a form of electronic music, but this was different. I said, Lisa... Have you heard this, Lisa? This is house music. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a studio. And I'm going to start to make my own house music, innit? 
and I got a mixer, then a drum machine, and over time, I built up this little studio, and all I would do, I'd sit in the corner of my flat, creating beats, making house music. No sleep. Taking loads of amphetamine. One day, two day, three day, one month, two month, three month. God knows this is true. Nine months later, I'm still on my stool, whizzing out of my face. About 24 inch waist, face drawn, eyes black, chewing the side of my lip. Then right out of the blue, I started to hear voices. I turned the music down. I said, Lisa, can you hear those voices coming from the other flats? She said, no, buddy, it's all in your head. I said, don't you tell me it's all in my head. What makes you think that? (laughs) I stopped taking the amphetamine, but the voices continued. I got really scared. I had a feeling in my stomach like an anxiety, like like a constant big butterfly. Eventually, I went to see a doctor. The doctor referred me to a psychiatrist and I got sent to Chilo Psychiatric Hospital. The diagnosis was amphetamine psychosis. I'd made myself psychotic through abusing amphetamine. See, now I'd marked my mind through using drugs. My mind was marked through using drugs. Flash forward nine years. I'm still hearing voices. Can you imagine? I had to learn to live with them. Constant. By now, I'd split up with Lisa and I moved to a place called Rochdale. By this point in my life, I was so poor, I used to go to KFC to lick other people's fingers. It was a Thursday. I'd lived in my new flat for five weeks. Nobody knew my business. It was a Thursday. I went into the post office, cashed me book because I was on benefits. I got on this bus. The bus was full. It takes off, it stops at the next stop, and this guy gets on, he's got a barcel dot, which is like a tattoo beauty spot. He's got a big fat neck, four dots tattooed across his knuckles, and short, stumpy fingers. Have you ever been on a bus or a train, or a tram, or a tube, and it's full? There's two seats spare, one next to you, one open, one on the other side, and somebody gets on, and you're thinking, oh no, I hope he sits on that seat. That's what I was thinking that day, I hope he sits on that seat. Well, he didn't sit on that seat, he sat on the seat next to me. You all right, mate? How are you doing? I'm thinking, I was doing all right till you sat down. <laughs> and we got chatting. And it was really genuine. Then we get off the bus thinking, what that? Wasn't that guy all right? What's he got that I've not got? He had something that was different. I'm not talking about a fat neck either. He had something that was different. That was the Thursday. The following Sunday, I was taking my dog, Kim, for a walk. She was a Jack Russell. She had a patch on one eye, which was her distinguishing mark. She had a short, stumpy tail, and she was really aggressive. I need to take her to the local field that was behind what was Birchall Hospital then, in Rochdale. And as I'm walking past Birchall Hospital, who should I see walking in the other direction? Yeah, the guy with the borsal dot, the big fat neck, four dots tattooed across his knuckles and short, stumpy fingers. You're all right, mate. How are you doing? Remember me? I was talking to him on the bus on Thursday. Yeah, I remember you. Chit chat, chit chat, chit chat. I says, Where have you been? He said, I've been to church. I thought, Oh no. It's a Bible basher. He says, You can come if you want. He says, We'll meet in the hospital grounds every Sunday. He says, No, mate, you're all right. I'm not into church. He says, Okay. He went his way. I went mine. The next day, I'm taking my dog for a walk. And as I'm walking past the hospital, I'm now looking. Come here, Kim. Come here, Kim. I said, Come here. I'm looking for a church, but I couldn't see a church. Because I was looking for a cathedral-style church. 
Steeple towers, stained glass windows, a graveyard. Somebody stood at the door dressed like Darth Vader. <laughs> My perception of church as it was then. Can't see a church in there. Next day, taking my dog for a walk, looking for a church. No way could I see it. Wednesday was my first appointment with my new psychiatrist in this new area. Since my breakdown, when I was living in Moss Side, I had to register not only with the local drug team and the local doctor, also a local psychiatrist, because I was an outpatient. So I'd registered, and it took about five weeks for my medical records to arrive to my new area, Rochdale. The psychiatrist's name was Dr. Samuel Yangi. He was from Nigeria. Didn't think anything of that appointment because in those days, I was having lots of chats with doctors and psych. It was my world. It was just normal for me to do that. Friday morning, there was a knock on my door. I thought, who's that? Is that the coppers? And I went into the hallway and I'm looking through the net curtain for the shape of the copper. I thought, oh, it's not a copper, that. And I got to the door. I opened it. this little woman about five foot two. Little lady. About 52 years of age, 19 stone. Pair of plastic glasses with sellotape at the side. You're eight cock. It's not right funny in Rochdale, you know. Any Rochdolians here? You're eight. They're beautiful people, but they do talk funny. Not like us Mancunians, innit? You're eight cock. Yeah. My name's Dot. I'm your next door but one neighbour. I've come to introduce myself. Okay. She said, you, you've just moved in, haven't you? I said, yeah. She said, your dad drives a red car, doesn't he? I said, yeah. She said, you've not got much furniture. I've been thinking, how do you know this, you nosy? <laughs> nosy neighbours, do you have them in limb? Yeah. Are you a nosy neighbour? She said, I've just bought a brand new fridge freezer. If you want my old one, you can have it for nothing. Well, I'm going to be honest, I had a fridge freezer. But I took hers anyhow and I sold it to our kid for 20 quid. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> we chatted for a couple of minutes on the doorstep. And I just said, Dot, she said, what? I said, Dot, I said, the other day I met this guy when I was taking my dog for a walk up past Birchall Hospital up the road, and, and he said he went to church in the hospital grounds, and this week I've been looking for a church, and I can't see a church in there. Do you know where it is by any chance? She said, oh, yeah, I go to that church. I'll take you on Sunday morning thinking, oh, no, I didn't want that. <laughs> Sunday morning comes, she knocks on the front door. We, I come out, we both walk up Birchall Road together into the hospital grounds, and we end up in a prefab. I'm thinking, I was expecting like the, the bells and the smells and the stained glass windows. None of that. Prefab. Everybody was dressed really casual. A bit scruffy, really, most of them, but anyhow. I remember walking in round the back and followed Dot to the front. She sat on the second row from the front on the end. I sits one in. I remember looking at my watch thinking, what time is this going to be over? People were going up to me. They were really, ni- they were really nice, you know. I am. Uh, so glad that you're here. I'm thinking, why are you glad that I'm here? You don't even know me. <laughs> Where's your handbag? <laughs> People being really nice. And they're being sat there. Then there was a tap on my shoulder. I looked round. It was a guy that I met on the bus with the parcels up, the big fat neck. Four dots tattooed across his knuckles and short stumpy fingers. He said, you all right, mate? I didn't think you were interested in coming. Well, I wasn't interested in coming, but Dot knocked on me. He says, you don't need to tell me about Dot. He says, well done, Dot, for bringing him. I'm thinking, these two have set me up. <laughs> Remember, I was suffering from amphetamine psychosis. And just before the meeting started, I heard the words behind me, hallelujah, praise the Lord, look round, and my Nigerian psychiatrist walked through the door. <laughs> what a 
are the chances of that? You move to a place, you don't know anybody, you live there for five weeks and you meet three people throughout a 10-day period. All three of them happen to be in that little prefab with about 30 to 40 people in it. It's a setup. In my head, I'm thinking, I'm trying to work it out. How did he know I was going to be on that bus? How did she get her flat before I got my flat? How did my psychiatrist get his... I'm trying to work it all out. I remember seeing my psychiatrist. I didn't know what to do. Rocking that daft. (laughs) Sit up straight. Your medication's working wonderful, doctor. Thinking, does he recognise me? And he sat on the road directly, directly behind me. He was so close, I could feel his breath on the back of my neck. Thinking, oh, my doctor sat behind me. One day, I'm going to write a book about my first day in church because it was a proper culture clash, you know. <laughs> proper culture clash. They started the music. Remember, I've come from the Manchester scene and the Hacienda and clubbing and DJing and music. And here I am in a prefab. The guitar comes out. And there was one guy who decides he was going to have a dance. Not the kind of dancing that I was used to, but a different kind of dance, like the Pentecostal two-step. Thinking, <laughs> charismatic anglers call it the resurrection hop. He's doing a dance like that. What's that he's doing? He's not even dancing in time. Culture clash. And then the guy that I met on the bus was a proper man's man, you know. Boom. And I clocked him out of the corner of my eye, and he was like this, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. A little bit effeminate. Thinking, what's he doing? Culture clash. Then my next over one neighbour reached under, chair, under a chair. She put her hand in a bag and she pulled out a tambourine. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Culture clash. Culture clash, my first day in church. Any of you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you're a visitor here this morning. You're feeling a bit uncomfortable because you're not used to the word, you're not used to the worship, and you're not used to... People worshipping God and stuff. I can feel it. Because I've been sat where you've been sat. Sat right where you're sat. Remember this dance going on? And remember this guy, oh Jesus. And ka-ching, 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 my next one neighbour. Then I looked over my shoulder, my psychiatrist had a Bible underneath his arm big enough to choke a draft. <laughs> she came on a Honda. She came on a Honda. She came on a Honda. Who came on a Honda? She tied my bow tie too tight. She tied my bow tie too tight. Not wearing a bow tie. I crack my shin on a calagasita. There's no calagasitas in sight. I remember looking and thinking, man, that's my doctor. He's treating me. I'm never going to get better. He's my doctor. After the music, I remember the guy getting up to speak, and at the end of his little thing, he said, we believe, it, we believe in a God who can heal. He said, is there anybody in this room who's got any issues? I thought, does he want someone with issues? <laughs> he said, I've got to be able to help you and heal you if we pray for you. Well, you know, you know, throughout my life, I kind of believed that there was a God. I didn't think about it often. You know, I always thought there must be something out there, but that's as far as... My belief got there must be something out there. And I thought that once every 10 years, at maximum. It wasn't something I thought about a lot, but I believed that there was something other than just this. And I'd prayed a few crisis prayers in my life. God, if you give me bail this time. No, this is the last time, God. If you give me bail this time, I'll never do it again. 
So I prayed a few crisis prayers, and I kind of believed that there was something out there. But this guy's telling me, if he prays for me, his God is able to help me with my issues. I remember thinking this, as he said those words, does anybody want to be prayed for? I thought, what have I got to lose? And I got out of my seat and I walked up front like that. Speak ten to two, nice one, top one sorted in it. I was the only one stood there. I thought, all right, fool, everybody was watching me. He says, What can I pray with you for? I'm thinking, how long have you got? <laughs> what time do you want to be finished? So I whispered it to him. He's got his microphone in his hand, and I'd seen it on the telly where the person goes into the confession booth and he confesses to the priest, or he goes to the vicar and confesses to the vicar, and it's private between the person and the vicar or the person and the priest. And I'd seen other programs where the person had gone and confessed to the pastor, so it's private between the person and whoever that other person is. I thought, well, it's going to be private. What can I praise you for? So I whispered it to him because it was private. I said, I've been on heroin now years. He says, okay, I'll pray with that. I says, I'm on methadone, 55 mils of methadone. I've been on that for, I can't, for years. I've been maintained at 55 for, for a long time. He says, okay, I'll pray for that. And then I says, been here in Boyston. Nine years. He's prayed for me in Boyston. He says, okay, I'll pray for that. And he put his hand on my head. I'm thinking, what's he got his hand on my head for? Get your hand off my head, will you? I'm like, bang, you know what I mean? <laughs> Culture clash. <laughs> Remember being stood there? He said, Lord, we come before you today. And we pray for this man. Heroin addiction, she came out of Honda. I'm thinking, he's just told everybody I'm a smackhead. <laughs> we pray that you release him from his methadone. Dependency, she came out And he's, he's saying this stuff out loud. I'm thinking, he's just told everybody on methadone. I'm thinking, oh no, he's going to tell everybody on the mountain. Don't tell anybody about these bosses. He's doing my nothing. He said, let me pray you take away these voices. She tied my bow tie too tight. I'm thinking, oh no, I thought it was private. But as he prayed for me, something happened. I remember shaking. I wasn't withdrawing from drugs. I'd had my valet and my dear fulminates. My methadone, I was normal. Shaking as normal was for me then. I was shaking. Tears started to stream down my cheeks. And I had a feeling like there was a fire inside my body. I'm thinking, wow, get your hand off my head. Wow, what's going on here? And he said, amen. I'm thinking, does that mean he's finished? And I opened my eyes and his hand had gone and he'd sat down and I walked back to my seat and something had changed. You see, all my natural get up and go had got up and gone by that point in my life because drugs have become my get up and go. You know, whatever your drug or your drugs of choice are, you take them for long enough and you need them to function. Just do normal, mundane things. You need them in your system just to live life and do normal things. I'd been like that for years. But on that day in that prefab, all my natural get up and go that had got up and gone, got up and came back. Because God became my get up and go. I said, Dot, what was all that about there, Dot? She said, all that was God, love. But Dot, I'm burning inside. She said, that's God, the Holy Spirit, working inside you. See, the Bible tells us that once we believe in him, we are then marked with the seal of God's Holy Spirit. I've now been marked by God. Within four weeks of me walking into that prefab, I was off all the drugs. And I remember walking home into my little flat. Dot went into her flat. I closed the door behind me and I stood in the hallway listening.
no voices. And I haven't heard voices since. Until I got married to my wife ten years ago. Now they've come back. <laughs> Actually, getting married to Tina was a good thing. But there was a slight problem. I had the name Lisa tattooed on my hand. <laughs> so I had it removed. Wise move, don't you think, ladies? Sometimes when I look into the mirror and I see some of my scars, my marks and my tattoos, I'm reminded of all the different things that I've been through. See, scars, marks and tattoos are a journal of your life's experiences. Johnny Depp was being interviewed and he was asked about his tattoos. He says, I see all my scars, marks and tattoos as my life journal, a record of my experiences. Scars, marks and tattoos are a journal of your life's experiences. And do you know that yours is full of things that are usable? Think about all the different things that you've been through as an individual that makes up your life's journal. All those different experiences. They're usable. I discovered this when I wrote my book in 2007. I said to the trustees of my charity that I set up in in 1999, I said, I want to give a copy of this book to every single prisoner in the country. There was 94,000 prisoners behind bars then in the whole of the United Kingdom, including Scotland, Northern Ireland. We've sent over 40,000 copies of that book out free of charge to prisoners. In the book, I record all the good, all the bad, and all the mad. In fact, for every one copy that you buy today, we send two into prisons with a profit from that. And that's just one way of just keep drip-feeding the books into the jails. There's also some other bits on the table out there. There's my story that was recorded like as a, a documentary style. There's some messages there that might be helpful to other people that are not yet Christians that you can give to and say, have a listen to that. We get so many letters from people who've been impacted by my story. Every week we get letters. Here's a snippet from one letter we received recently from a guy who's in a jail right now in Surrey. I have just read your book, Once an Addict. It has hit me hard, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. It has caused a hardened criminal like me to take a good look at my life and to examine what I'm doing with it. Thank you for writing it, Peter. You see, this is me making use out of my experiences in my life's journal. Scars, marks, and tattoos are a journal of your life's experiences. You see, with God, nothing is wasted. He can take your mess and turn it into a message. He can take your negative experiences and use them in a positive way because the Bible says everything works together for good. And he can use them. Let me finish by taking you back to that place where I started, Buxton Police Station. It's gone two o'clock in the morning. I'm wearing that beige blanket and it's still very itchy. Oh no, here we go again. I hope they give me bail. The desk sergeant could barely keep his face straight. He looked at his system at those letters, SMTs. And then he asked me that question. They asked this every time. Do you have any scars, marks or tattoos? Yeah, I do. Then I began to listen. See, scars, marks and tattoos, it's not just criminals who's got them. We've all got them in one shape or form. What have we learned from them this morning? Four lessons for you to take away. Number one, 
Scars are evidence of your survival. Number two, marks make you unique. Number three, tattoos cause you to stand out from the crowd. And number four, scars, marks and tattoos are a journal of your life's experiences. Everybody stand, please. John, if you just get ready here for the song that we're going to have in a moment. I'm going to finish right now. As I finish in all the places where I speak, I speak up and down the country. I'm a missionary to the United Kingdom. That's my vocation in life, to communicate Christianity to the people of the United Kingdom, whether it be in prisons, whether it be in big events, small, small events. And wherever I go, I always finish by praying a prayer to give people the opportunity to make a connection with God. Because this is how it works. When you look to God's instruction book, the Bible, those letters B-I-B-L-E stand for basic instructions before leaving earth. When you look to God's instruction book, it gives us some pointers, and this is how it works, that God stands at the door of our life knocking, knocking, knocking. And when we open the door and we invite God to come, and he comes in, and things start to change, just like it did with me, we'll be a survivor, we'll realise that we're unique, we'll start to stand out from the crowd, and we're able to make use of our life's experiences. And right now, we're standing at the door of some of your lives, and he's knocking He's knocking, he's knocking. And he's saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep that door shut and keep me shut out? Or are you going to open the door and invite me in? Right now, he's knocking on the door of your life. What are you going to do? If God was a burglar, he'd wait for it to go dark and he'd try and burgle his way in. He'd come and he'd try and kick in the back door. If he couldn't kick in the back door, he'd try and kick in the side door. If he couldn't kick in the doors, he'd try and jam in through the downstairs windows. That's if God was a burglar. But God's not a burglar. He'll never try and burgle his way in. He will only ever come in through the legal entry. Usually, the legal entry to a house is the front door. The legal entry to a life, the front door to a life, is the will. And he stands At that door, he stands at your will and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks. And he's saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to open the door and invite me in? Or are you going to keep the door shut and keep me shut out? I'm going to pray this prayer. There's two groups of people going to pray this prayer with me. The first group are those people, you've never prayed any kind of prayer before where you've given God permission to come into your life. It could be that you've been coming to this church. It could be that you've been coming to the youth group. And you've got Christian friends and you're enjoying the music. You're enjoying having friends and all that. It could be that you're an adult. You're coming to this church. You're enjoying the music. You're enjoying your friendships. You're enjoying the messages. But you've never opened the door of your life and given God permission to come in. Coming to church is all good, but that's not it. What is it? You knowing God in your Noah. Having a relationship with God, then out of that you come to church and you you enjoy the music and you make connections and build friendships. That's all part of it. But the main thing is you, knowing God for yourself. Do you know God for yourself? Do you know him in your knower? Well, you can get to know him. I can help you do that. You're going to pray this prayer with me, the first group. Those people who have never never prayed any kind of prayer before, it doesn't matter whether you're 9, 99, 19, it doesn't matter, you can pray this prayer. As long as you're able to understand what I'm saying, you can make a connection with God for yourself today. The other group of people who are going to pray this prayer with me are those people who prayed some kind of prayer in the past. You've given God permission to come in. You've made a connection with God. You've had God in your life. But right now at this moment, you're not cutting it. You're not living how God wants you to live. Listen, I'm not here to give you an hard time. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All I'm here to say to you is just pray this prayer 
Just get back on track. Get back into the groove of your Christian faith and God will forgive and forget and you can just get on with it. He'll forgive it. He'll wipe your slate clean. Whatever it has been that's been holding you back or taking you off track, he'll forgive and forget and you can just get on with the rest of your Christian journey with a clean slate. Two groups of people are going to pray this prayer with me. In fact, everybody else, you make up the third group. You're going to pray to encourage the first group and the second group. Are we ready? Park your pride outside for two more minutes. Here we go. All three groups, let's pray this prayer together. Park your pride outside. All three groups together. Repeat after me. Dear God, I come to you today and I admit that I'm not perfect. Forgive me for my faults, for my flaws, for my failures. Wipe my slate clean. Today, I've heard you knocking on my front door and I'm opening it. And I'm inviting you in. Sit in my driving seat. Take hold of my steering wheel. While their heads are bowed, if you've prayed that prayer, you're part of the first group or the second group, I want you to raise your hands as quickly as you can so I can see it. Raise your hands as quickly as you can. Keep your hands raised. Go on, keep your hands raised. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Put your hands down. There may be a few more. So I'm going to count down 10 seconds. If you've raised your hands already, the 10 people raise their hands, you keep your hands down. But the rest of you, if you've prayed that prayer, you're part of the first group or the second group. As I count down 10 seconds, it's just giving you an extra 10 seconds just to raise your hand. Anybody else prayed that prayer? Raise your hand so I can see it. 10, 9, another one here, thank you. Anybody else prayed that prayer? You're part of the first group or the second group. 8, Seven. Another one here. Thank you. Anybody else? Another one over here. Thank you. Another one here. That's another four people. Anybody else? Six. Five. Anybody else? Four. Raise your, eye, raise your hand so I can see it. Another. No. Three. Anybody else? Another one here. Thank you. Anybody else? Two. One. Father, I want to thank you for those people who have responded this morning. And you know why they've responded. Whether they're part of the first group or the second group, whether it's for the first time or it's to get back on track so that they can just get back into the groove, I want to pray that God would so be on their case this morning and this would be a day in their diary. Their diary that they will talk about for years to come, that this was the day when they connected with you or this was the day when they reconnected with you and life became different. I give them to you now, God. I'm going to count to three. All those people who raise your hands, whether you're in the first group or the second group, I want you to... I'm going to count to three. You're going to leave your seats. You're going to go through that door. Why? As a charity, we've produced a DVD called What's Next? That prayer is the beginning of a journey. You need to know what to do next. We want to give you a DVD. We also want to give you a booklet called Making the Connection by J. John, which explains the Christian faith in a more detailed way, but very contemporary way too. We want to give you one of those. So I'm going to count to three. The music's going to play on three. All those people, there's about 16 people, raise their hands. And if you didn't raise your hands but you prayed the prayer, you can still leave your seat and go through that door into the little area at the side or wherever they decide to take you. I know we've discussed two areas. So are we ready? On the point of three. One, two, three. You go now. Thank you very much. If you just move out of the way, thank you very much. Thank you. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you very much.